I think the cost sharing debate is slightly a red herring. Why? I disagree. Oh, that's, I totally disagree. That's the, that's the crux of the matter. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and we are back at full strength with uh, Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Yes. Feels great. For a it blockbuster does feel great. podcast. There's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. Vox.com has uh, on the internet website uh, and also on our YouTube channel interviews with, with both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton uh, this morning as we're recording. And we want to talk about aspects of, of both of those those kind of interviews. Can uh, I say something funny about this? Yeah. We also literally interviewed them at the same time. It was a very yeah. 2016 day <laughs> yesterday. It was happening in parallel. You could even yeah. get them, you know, dual view, watch everyone spying. It was amazing. We oh, sadly, sadly no Martin O'Malley content, but <laughs> his day will come. And I'm whose sure. fault is that, Matt? Yeah, it's my fault. It's my fault. I was covering the Apple event. So we, we want to talk about Bernie's uh, single-payer health care plan. We want to talk about something Hillary said that I think you will not hear discussed on the endless discussions of Hillary Clinton's new book uh, in the back half of the podcast. But Bernie Sanders is out today with legislation uh, to sort of make his Medicare for all slogan into uh, a policy program. And I, I think Sarah wrote a great piece explaining what what that bill says, what it does, and can you can you? Yeah, so us? it is called the Medicare for All Act, but I don't actually think it is Medicare for All. It's something a lot more generous than Medicare that they are proposing. Sanders is proposing, and he now has the support of 15 other Senate Democrats, which is a pretty significant number given that he might have had, like, I think Jeff reported, Jeff Stein on our staff, that he had zero co-sponsors just a few years ago. So really big change. Anyways, this is a plan that would be a universal coverage plan for all American residents. It would cover a very wide array of medical services, everything from hospital visits, doctors, glasses, um, dentist visits, prescription drugs. And I think what stood out to me is that nearly all of it is 100% free. There are no more co-payments. There is no more cost-sharing. There is no deductible when you, Sanders envisions a world where when you go to the emergency room, when you go to the dentist, or when you pick up a pair of glasses, you pay absolutely nothing at all, that all of those services are covered by this new government plan. So now, Sarah, I've heard Bernie say many times that every other industrialized country already recognizes that healthcare is a right in this way. Is, Is that true? Sort of. So the thing that jumped out at to me reading the Sanders plan over the past week or sorry, past day is that it is much more generous than than the other international systems we're aware of. Usually financing these things is difficult. And one of the things that does not exist in the Medicare for All bill is a, a how do we pay for it? I'm told by Sanders' office they have a white paper coming out with some options later today. It may be out when you listen to this podcast, but the bill itself does not have, like, this is how we're going to raise taxes. Is so, that white paper going to come with a cost estimate? Unclear. In the future, Exciting. when you listen to this Weeds episode, you may know the answer to future, that. Future us will know. Future us. Look forward to learning that. Any nation runs into the challenge of financing the systems, and usually they control the costs in one of two ways. One, they just have a smaller benefit package. In Canada, for example, the benefit package, somewhat surprisingly, does not include prescription drugs. It does not include dental. It does not include vision. 
usually Canadians often get that through an employer. There's a private market for those sort of services. So that's one way to hold down the costs. And the Sanders plan does not do that. It covers pretty much every benefit that exists in healthcare. The other way you'd hold down costs is charge people something when they go to the doctor. So this is actually a more common approach than the Canadian one is to cover a wide array of benefits, cover things like dental and vision, but charge people money when they go to the doctor. This is something, if you look at the Taiwanese system, for example, which is the most recent um, single-payer system created in 1994, they have a whole cost-sharing structure that would feel pretty familiar to anyone who has employer-sponsored coverage. Um, The fees usually aren't super high. They actually tend to be somewhat lower than we pay in the United States. But again, the Sanders plan, it doesn't include any sort of cost-sharing except for prescription drugs. It's very specific in how it uses these. It suggests that there should be cost-sharing for uh, name-brand drugs to push people towards generic. So it's used as a tool in in that way. But for emergency room visits, for doctor visits, for dental, for vision, there is no payment on the part of the individual. And that is something that could get quite expensive in part because people aren't contributing any sort of money that way to their to their healthcare, suggesting you're going to have to make it up in higher taxes to finance the system, and because people just use more healthcare when when there is no fee, you might be less reticent to go to the emergency room. And this could be good or bad, I would say, you know, depending on how urgent the need is. But we've generally seen, and um, in our live episode, you'll we will really soon we talk about this Rand health insurance experiment from the 1970s that really proved people use less healthcare when they have to pay a little bit more. So you'd expect people just start going to the doctor a lot more if you had the Sanders plan come into law. What happens to the rest of the healthcare system here? What happens to traditional Medicare, to Medicaid, to my employer-sponsored insurance? What is going on elsewhere? They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. How so are they a, gone? <laughs> there's a four-year transition period. So basically the way it is written, saying the year this passes, that's kind of year zero. There's a four-year period where there will be the opportunity to buy into Medicare as it exists now or to buy into a public option that'll be sold through the marketplaces. The Sanders plan envisions four years after it passes, Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, which covers low-income kids, um, I believe TRICARE, which covers military families, employer-sponsored insurance, um, the Obamacare marketplaces, those all sunset. Those all end four years after. We're talking for, I don't know how many people exactly, 200 million some people, that there will be a date when their insurance just changes. Yes, and like, their taxes change And their taxes too. change. Like, everything just changes. Yes. There's no, like, if you like what you have, you can keep it. Now, no. maybe what you get is a lot better. Right. So the but, argument Sanders would yeah. make, if you like if you like your doctor, you can keep it. There's no, if you like your insurance plan, you can keep it. Your insurance plan is going away. And quite honestly, if, you know, the Sanders plan, like, sounds like a great plan. I would love a plan where I didn't have to pay any money when I went to the doctor, where there was no deductible. But it, it sounds like one that is very, very expensive, to finance if it's structured that way. But you're right. It is very, it is in a lot of ways the opposite of the Affordable Care Act, which tried its best to disrupt the insurance market we have as little as possible. It blows up the insurance market. Um, The only two programs that continue to exist outside of the Medicare for All plan is the Veterans um, Affairs Healthcare System and the Indian Health Services. Those two are carved out and would exist as they do now. Any other source of insurance in the United States would end. But you, by definition, would not be losing any of the benefits of your current 
insurance, right? I mean, the way yeah. this is structured. No, your so. benefits would probably get better. Like right now, like a lot of people, like we have this vision plan that pays barely anything. We have a dental plan that's very skimpy coverage that... Hear that, HR? <laughs> this is not me complaining about Vox. I mean, this is just the I'm industry. complaining. Okay. I hit my dental limit last year. It's going to turn <laughs> into Just for the record. Yes. I have to say, I, I have I, really bad teeth. My, 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 my <laughs> lifetime dental bills are way higher than, than medical. And I, All right. I, frankly, okay. Focus, I, guys. I like Bernie's priorities <laughs> let's, let's focus here. Yeah. So you're right. Your insurance, you know, would likely get a lot better. You know, most of us, you measure insurance usually at actuarial value, the amount that... Um, the insurance usually kicks in for the average person's health care. Most of us have health insurance plans, if you have an employer-sponsored plan, that are like 85% or so of the insurance covering your costs, and usually people are chipping in about 15%. This is like 98 99% covered by the government. But then you have this question that is currently unanswered of, well, how do you pay for all of that? Leaving the house these days, it often turns into like a, a kind of weird scavenger hunt. You need your phone, you need your keys, you need your wallet. If, if you've got a toddler like I do, there's like all kinds of bags and apparatus that needs to come with them. And it's it's annoying. You know, it's like it's the biggest hassle in your day when you, when you just want to get out there. Um, and eight years ago, Tracker changed everything, fixing this problem when they released their first tracking device. And now they've done it again with the all new Tracker Pixel. Uh, so with Tracker Pixel, you'll never need to worry about losing your things again. It, what it is, is it's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. It's a super light, super small thing. You just stick it on whatever you tend to lose. Uh, keys, wallets, bags, uh, even your cat. Uh, it's small enough to fit anywhere. And then when you misplace an item that has a tracker pixel attached, you use your phone and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. It's even got LED lights so you can find something in the dark. And if you're missing your phone, you just press the button on your tracker pixel, you know, on your keys or your wallet or something, and your phone will ring even if it's on silent mode. So your phone can find anything and any object you have can find your phone. You can even locate your item if it's miles away because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. Uh, it's like ways, but for your own stuff. Uh, so Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. So here's the bottom line. You go to thetrackr.com, T-R-A-C-K-R.com. You enter promo code WEEDS and you get 20% off of any order. That's thetrackr.com, promo code WEEDS for 20% off, thetrackr.com, promo code WEEDS. I want to make actually an unfashionable observation about this, which is that I think obviously politically taxes are a big deal, but substantively looking at this, to me, the real problem is the like real resource capacity. Like this plan does not conjure up additional doctors out of anywhere. If anything, it's likely to sort of reduce the number of medical personnel hours because the reimbursement rates are going to go down somewhat. And by having no cost sharing, I mean, first mm -hmm. by giving coverage to people who don't already have it, but also you listen to Bernie talk about it, right? Like Bernie Sanders's view of the problem is that not only do we have several million people who don't have insurance, but we have tens of millions more people who, because of high deductibles and high co-payments, can't get in to see the doctor as frequently as they want to. I mean, that's, that's what he says, right? I mean, he's not unaware that this is a very generous benefits package. So Sanders is envisioning a large minority of the population going to the doctor much more frequently than they currently go to the doctor. But he is not uh, cloning the doctors. He's not, you know, I mean, this is like a bit of a, 
uh, I don't know, fussy concern. But I mean, even if you imagine, right, everyone just says, okay, 10% value-added tax, uh, we get this free health care. That's a trade-off that I love. I think the government's great. I've read amazing things about uh, Finland. Uh, let's go do it. You're going to have, like, a, a problem, right? I mean, I, I don't even know anything about healthcare, but I know a lot about mass transit systems. And, like, one key reason why no city that I'm aware of has zero cost sharing on the subway or bus is that they would get too crowded. Right. I mean, and then once you decide, okay, we're going to charge fares for people to get on the subway, it becomes a revenue stream. You start relying on it, building that into your into your whole thing. But in general, some public services work fine if they're completely free. They don't become overtaxed or or something like that. But one reason that countries like Sweden, right, have co-payments, they're very low co-payments because they want people to be able to afford to see the doctor. But like, there's a huge psychological difference between this is free and this will cost me $10. Nobody goes bankrupt paying $10 once a year there's to see There's also in those GP, systems but, usually a subsidy for low-income right, residents. Right, but just a little something to try to make people be like, okay, do I right. really want to schedule an appointment? So I would like to take a breath and just try to figure out which conversation we want to have in oh, yeah. which order about this. Because two hours, two hours, every yeah. conversation. Seven and a half <laughs> hours later, we're we're still on this segment because there's so much to talk about here, and I, I almost think you could cut it into categories, right? There's a question of whether a plan like this is politically in doable, right? Would the disruption be too much? I'm not even asking the question of could it get 60 votes in the Senate? I just mean like literally would the American people, when they looked at the taxes, when they looked at what this meant for them, would they want this? Then there's a question of is it practical? Like could you implement a plan like this? And and if not, what changes would you need to make? Those questions are like the supply side issues. Then there's actually a third question, which I, I think is worth asking too, which is if you imagined that it was politically doable and implementable, right? You could work on the supply side and stuff. Would you want this, right? Would you actually want the amount of American resources that we're talking about here going to healthcare in this way for these reasons in this kind of structure? And, and I do think one thing that can sometimes happen to big ideas is that people switch between the three conversations very fast. And so you get this like too many critiques that are almost a little bit at odds with each other. So I, I think I want to actually start with what I like in this plan. Should we vote? Should we vote? Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to start with what I think this plan does well before getting too practical about it. Something that is unusual about Bernie Sanders as a politician is he is a politician who does not pull the punch. He wanted to have a single payer plan, and he's brought out a plan that is a maximalist version of single payer. I mean, it is more single-payer than what we think of as single-payer plans in other systems. It is more healthcare than what single-payer systems in other countries do, for better and for worse. I mean, this plan fundamentally, compared to other countries, it delivers more healthcare and fewer cost controls, which on some level might be actually a popular equilibrium, but we just don't know. It would mean a tremendous amount of resources given the American system. And I think, by the way, that's not really all Sanders' fault, for reasons I think it's worth talking about. Trying to do a single-payer system in America in 2017 with our healthcare system where it is, you would end up trying to solve more problems than a single-payer system implemented in Canada in the 1970s tried to solve or even had to solve. And so um, I don't remember, by the way, if Canada was in the 1970s. I'm I think that's about right. Using that as an example. Um, so I think that one thing going on here is that Sanders really, in a minute, 
has pulled the Overton window way, way, way further out. He's got 15 Democrats in the Senate sent on to this plan, including a bunch of the key 2020 contenders, like I believe Elizabeth Warren, Cory mm-hmm. Booker, Kamala Harris, uh, Christian Gillibrand. Joe Manchin, uh, who is the most conservative Senate Democrat, is saying we should at least explore a single pair. So one thing I think you have to say for Bernie Sanders here is that he has changed the debate on health care. And he is willing to be out there with the most maximalist plan. And it's also not the case that he is not a guy who is willing to compromise at the end of the day. I mean, he voted for the Affordable Care Act, which is not at all like this plan, and then was out there defending it. So I think that one thing that's useful here is Bernie Sanders has really staked out and created like a polarity around the leftmost position in this debate. So actually, in a way, I think there hasn't always been um, in American healthcare politics, there's a very, very strong leftward like lean now on the debate. Uh, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how that reshapes the politics. It could, by the way, have, I think, a, a strange effect of lighting a little bit more fire under Republicans. Uh, I'm very curious to see if this in any way revitalizes the Cassidy-Graham um, efforts that are, are, are going out there because Republicans all of a sudden think, well, if we don't do something to, to deal with this, we're going to get single payer. But that said, I do think the downside of what Sanders is doing here is he's got a plan that, as you price it out, I think is going to be very tough. Um, Now, they're going to come out with financing options. I think the one reason I ask you about cost estimates is that this was a fight during the primary, too. They came out with a cost estimate on their plan, and the financing on that was already pretty rough. And then independent experts looked at it and said, that is not at all what that plan is going to cost. And so then the financing on like what a more valid cost estimate looked like was extremely, extremely undoable. And so I think that's one question here. It's not just Sanders will tend to push this in the question of will overall spending on healthcare be higher or lower? Something you write in your explainer, Sarah, which I think is correct, is we actually don't know under this plan. It doesn't have as much cost control as another country's single payer system because you can't bring prices down that fast. And he's not even very clear on what the pricing mechanisms in the plan will be. So it will bring pricing down somewhat through more bargaining power, through more through uh, cleaner administrative costs, but it's also going to bring it quite a bit up through utilization. And so I think like there's a real question of where you end up on, but then you're going to take a lot of things in the system that are currently implicit, right? I cover healthcare and I don't know how much my employer pays for my healthcare. Nor do I. Right? So, and and that's true for a lot of people. It's true for most people with employer-sponsored care. If you're on Medicare right now, um, or if you're on Medicaid right now, your main taxes for those, either on Medicaid, you're not paying for it. And on Medicare, your taxes have been paid way back in the day. Under, I think, most plausible financing mechanisms, you know, value-added taxes, et cetera, your contribution will actually go up. So a lot of, like, who pays becomes different. It's really hard in ways that I think that Sanders doesn't always, and a lot of Democrats don't always want to deal with. And then I just think there's one other, I think, really useful question here, which is Sanders has a view that I think is um, actually a pretty widely held view, at least in theory, which is that a healthcare benefit package should be basically as generous as possible. People don't go to get health care for no reason. I mean, we're talking about vision and dental care. And we were talking about how, I mean, I had a really bad series of dental problems last year. I don't consider dental care to be optional. If you break my glasses, I will just die. (laughs) I will just die. I have like a negative eight vision and I can't see anything. Like I can't see you. So to me, these things aren't, aren't optional. On the 
other hand, we are potentially looking at a plan that would generate a huge amount of spending towards health care in this country, and it would come from somewhere and cannibalize some other things. I do think this is one of the problems we often have in the healthcare debate just generally. I think it's a problem with Medicare, with Medicaid, with Obamacare, with employer-based healthcare. I think healthcare is one of these things where because it is so important to us, we almost have no effective way of even asking the question of is it actually worth it? Because even when it's not worth it, sort of technically in terms of the health you're getting delivered for what you're spending, it is often worth it psychologically in terms of the um, security of knowing that you can get healthcare when you need it. But at the government level where those sort of budgetary decisions do need to be made, particularly if you bring it all onto the budget, and so like that decision is being made in one place at one time, I, I do think the question does need to be asked of, you know, is this a better idea than doing um, the college tuition plan? Or is this a better idea than than doing other things? And so that's a big picture question that I think is sort of far down the road, but I at least think is worth opening up because it isn't always obvious to me, having spent a lot of time in healthcare, I really want people to have the psychological um, ability to get care. And I want them to have the ability to get the care they need. I want me to have the ability to get the care I need. But also, it's not my read of the evidence on, on health uh, insurance itself that it is so, and medical provision of care itself, that it is so always great right now that I want to necessarily open up the spigot in an unlimited way. Hey guys, uh, here with a message from one of our great sponsors, The Economist Magazine. Uh, they know how much I value the insights into stories that are shaping our world, so they're offering all you Weeds fans a free copy. Uh, you know, if you, if you like digging into the weeds of issues, you're going to love The Economist. It gives you a chance to, to dig deeper into what's really going on in the world. Uh, they don't have a horse in the race, and, and they try to give you straight-up facts on a huge range of vital topics, from politics to technology, science to the environment, of course, economics. Uh, I particularly appreciate their international coverage. They get into the sort of the domestic politics of foreign countries in a fascinating way. We can only cover so many stories here. Uh, so, you know, do yourself a favor. Visit www.economist.com weeds to sample a free copy of The Economist right now. They got the lowdown on the forces that impact our lives and change our world. They don't waste a single word. They, they cut through the noise. They help you stay informed and entertained. So dig into The Economist today. Visit economist.com weeds or just search for Economist Weeds and sample your free copy. Thanks, as always, for listening to our show. And if you like this episode of The Weeds, then check out How I Built This. Every week, host Guy Raz talks to people behind some of the most inspiring companies and movements in the world, bringing you stories of incredible persistence, grit, and insight. Find on the NPR One app or wherever you find your podcasts. All right. Let me, let me mount a fairly strong defense of this, yeah. this plan. I, I have, as I said before, I, I have some practicality concerns, but... I think that, you know, if you abstract away, there's a tension between the desire to say, moving away from the politics, right? That like, okay, the problem with this is that it costs too much. And the observation that national health expenditures in the United States are already extraordinarily high. I don't see any reason to believe that you could not transfer the 8% of GDP or so that we are currently spending privately on healthcare in the United States over to the public sector without crowding out anything that's happening in the non-health side of the economy. Now, I think there is a big, big question about, like, how do you actually do that, right? I mean, I, I've written about this in, in the taxes, and I think, I think that— um, the single-payer people sometimes get a little hand-wavy about this, that the actual nature of the transition makes a big kind of difference. But 
in principle, the doctors and the hospitals and the dentists and all that stuff, like, they all exist, right? The To the extent that there's a problem with this plan, it seems to me it's that it doesn't contain any supply-side remedies to, to conjure up new ones, but that's a problem with us under the current status quo, right? Like, these supply-side issues should be addressed. Like, we should improve the way we finance prescription drug research. We should improve the way we allow uh, dental hygienists and nurse practitioners to work. We should improve the way we allow for immigration of skilled healthcare professionals. Um, I'm sure there's rural health issues that I don't understand, but, you know, there are towns where people live really far from the hospital. We need to address that, whether it's publicly or privately financed. Moving it in the most, like, abstract way, you could have a national 10% value-added tax, right? So that squeezes consumption, finances the healthcare thing, then all this private insurance costs come off. So, you know, then in equilibrium, it should all balance out. Everyone should have the exact same amount of non-healthcare stuff as they currently have, be relieved of these healthcare costs. Uh, People who are healthy will be a little bit worse off on net. People who are sick will be a lot better off on that. Everyone will have a sort of psychological relief. We will be spared the the sort of social resources that are currently consumed by um, health insurance underwriting, which is not a socially valuable activity, but we have a lot of people going and doing it. So uh, to me, like, in principle, this is a completely fine idea. To me, when you look at the transition part, where he's like, okay, we're, we're going to have a four-year transition phase in which there's going to be, like, a strong public option that everyone can buy into, I almost think, like, if you did that, you would be—I I mean, I, I don't know the full legislative gamesmanship, right? But, like, if you created the strong public option that this bill envisions as a transition mechanism, and then people were able to— buy into it with subsidies, have their employers buy them into it, blah, 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 blah. You could probably just leave it there. I totally agree with this. The transition part itself is like a great bill. (laughs) Because it's all in the transition, right? Like, it's really hard to, like, get from here to there. And so they acknowledge that it's hard to get from here to there. So they're they're envisioning, they're a little vague on it, right? But, like, once you acknowledge that you need to create this whole transition apparatus, if you could create the transition apparatus, like, that's good enough. But I think, like, you can walk home. You're missing, like, what Bernie is actually going for. Like, he is going for a world, like, as we were saying, where no one pays anything for healthcare. And I think, like, this world where, you know, I think a lot of people could be quite happy with a world where there's a public option, where there's Medicare buy-in, where we still probably have insurance at work, or maybe some of us decided the public option was a better fit for us. But I don't think that is the world that Bernie envisions. I think there's an ideological component to this, too, that it is a world where no one misses out on healthcare because of the cost of it. And I think that is something that Canada has gotten the closest too. And, you know, you raised earlier this, I, I think it is true that people in Canada, they do not miss out on healthcare because of the cost on it, but they sometimes miss out of healthcare because of the weight for it. And when I look at this Sanders plan, it seems to envision a world where there was a great quote and um, T.R. Reid wrote this great book where he kind of got his shoulder injury fixed in 11 or so different countries. And he said, you know, in Canada, everyone is fine with waiting as long as they have to wait the same amount of time. And the Sanders' plan strikes me as one that takes us to a world that's very different than one where we have a Medicare public option or, um, you know, a a marketplace public option, but one where all of us are in the same pool and we are all waiting to see the same doctors. Um, It is certainly true that Canada has significantly longer wait times for healthcare than the U.S. Um, The Commonwealth Fund does this 
ranking of 11 um, peer countries on healthcare every year. And every year they find that Canada has the longest wait times. And that is kind of, and you can debate whether that is a healthcare system you want or not. I think Canadians- But if the Canadians were willing to spend as much on their system as we spend just on our public system, like they could reduce their wait times- a lot. Right. I think the question of this is like, is this a bill about controlling health costs or is this a bill about expanding access to care? And I see it as a bill very much about the the second with little right. thought to the to the second idea about controlling costs. But so this is a place where I actually think politically what this bill is doing is pretty interesting. So so Sanders had an interview with our colleague Jeff Stein. And one of the things he said in the interview, actually when Jeff was bringing up some of these concerns, was he said what this struggle is about, really, honestly, is not a healthcare debate. And when I read that the first time, it's a kind of weird I made statement. a shrug emotion. <laughs> it's a kind of weird statement to make about healthcare in America, right? Um, when, you, when you come out with a healthcare plan. But I actually think there's a way in which Sanders, I don't know if he's right about it, but 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 I think it's worth taking seriously what I think he's saying there. There is... Sanders is not somebody who views the world um, and views his own plans in a kind of technocratic way. I think that he often sees his plans as establishing terms of debate, as establishing moral principles about American life. And I think that what he's doing in this plan, to, to Sarah's point, I think we are used to thinking about plans like this as having a goal like 100% coverage or bringing down costs. And I think Sanders is trying to change what is actually the goal, like what is, what is considered the moral status of healthcare politics in America, which is not like, is everybody covered um, or is the budget in balance or somewhere near balance? But he believes, and I think he's been pretty clear and consistent on this, that the goal of healthcare should be that you should be able to get whatever healthcare you think or a doctor thinks you need without ever worrying about the cost of it. And, you know, going back to this point about the transition stuff in this plan being very interesting, you know, I don't think that he thinks he'll get this whole bill, but I think he thinks and is correct that he is refashioning where the Democratic Party is on this and is possibly making it a whole lot more likely that you get full Medicare buy-in and that, you know, there's sort of really a road happening towards some kind of single payer. And it's why I actually find it a little bit hard to evaluate what's going on in this bill. Because on the one hand, I think that this is such a maximalist vision that if you imagine it just being passed kind of as is and, and with whatever financing he's going to come forward with, it, this is very hard to imagine. And the level of disruption is very hard to imagine. And there's just like a lot of, that would happen to the system that I don't even really know how to game out. Um, it, it's not, you do not get the system we have with this bill, right? I don't mean, I don't mean the insurance system. I mean the actual healthcare delivery system, like hospitals close, other hospitals open, like whole huge amounts of things happen. Employer, there's this whole question of what happens to the money employers are currently spending on healthcare. Does it go to taxes because the healthcare is paid for by an employer taxation? Does it go to wages? Do they keep it and put it back in shareholder dividends? Like there's all these huge questions. And on the other hand, I think if you don't take the bill as a kind of technocratic entry into the debate, um, but you instead take it as a moral entry into the debate, 
Then you have this sort of interesting um, new front in the debate opening up because we've just been through this Obamacare fight, and maybe you're not even done with it, where Democrats clearly have this goal that everybody should have some kind of health insurance. And they're not actually that clear even on what kind of health insurance. I mean, a lot of people under Obamacare do not have great insurance. It's actually one of the things Sanders points out. Republicans came in and clearly had no goal at all, except for not Obamacare. And so the fact that they had no goal at all that was clear was really tough for them. And I think Sanders is opening up this new front that is really not about insurance, but is about care itself. But I think eventually it has to become about insurance. Like I read, you spoke with um, Secretary Clinton yesterday, who offers this critique, which I, you know, personally find pretty compelling that eventually a moral proposal has to become a technocratic proposal, that you actually have to figure out how much do we value that moral proposal? How much Uh are we willing to spend to get to a world where no one goes without health care because of the cost of it? If a few years ago, I interviewed this guy, William Shaw, who's a um, health economist at Harvard, who essentially, if you are a country who wants to set up a single-payer system, you call this guy up, and he kind of helps you think through how do we pay for it, how do we build it? And one of the things he told me that was a bit eye-opening was half the countries he works with fail. Like, he gets called by a lot of countries who are, like, really excited about the idea of doing something like single-payer, and everyone gets together, and they drop a plan for what they want to cover— And the place where it falls apart is figuring out how to pay for it. And this is, he actually worked on, I spoke with him because he was working on Vermont's single-payer plan, which followed this exact progression. So I I do understand, and I think it helps me to think of this Sanders plan as almost like a blue sky explanation of like what Sanders would like to see the United States value, like the moral system you'd like to go to. But I think that only gets you so far. And I I still am like frustrated to see in this plan a lack of thinking about how do we pay for it. And again, I understand these financing options are coming out later, but one of the things I've seen covering these single payer efforts and for a while, which was true with Vermont, it was true with the Sanders campaign original proposal, that the first numbers that come out are often very, very rosy, that they often underestimate the cost of a single-payer system. And once you get to the actual attempt to implement it and you really start putting in the numbers, it it becomes clear what an expensive proposition this is. Um, But I think, I mean, one idea I am attracted to, and it would be even more disruptive, is really getting serious about the prices we pay for healthcare in the United States. I think that is, if you had any shot at making a plan like this work, you'd have to see some pretty drastic cuts in payments to doctors, payments to hospitals, um, to the point where, like, as we're saying, you likely would see some hospital closures. And it's tough. I think it is tough to balance giving everyone a card that says you can go to the doctor whenever you want, at the same time paying doctors significantly less to keep that program in some kind of feasible budget. That's that's a really, really tough balance to strike, even if that's kind of the system you're aspiring to. Well, so one thing on the question of you know, is it okay to release these papers without explicit pay-for mechanisms? I mean, it's worth saying, right, Medicare Part D was not paid for in its system. The Bush tax cuts were not paid for. The $2 trillion invasion of Iraq was not paid for. Donald Trump's uh, tax reform proposals are not paid for. Um, It's just, like, not the case in the United States that typically the way major legislative changes happen is that they are financed through explicit 
pay for. Like that is a conceit of a certain group of journalists. And it is true that Barack Obama chose to do the Affordable Care Act that way, probably to its detriment. Um, it is also not the case that the budget deficit in the United States is currently too high, right? There's not a freestanding budget deficit problem that legislation needs to address. So I I think, you know, it's true that I don't think you could do this $20 bajillion healthcare plan purely through borrowing more money. At the same time, the money exists, right? I mean, I think that the technical challenge that I'm not sure Bernie Sanders' staff is like quite up to meeting this challenge. I will see what they come up with. But the, the technical problem in the United States is to take the money that employers are currently spending on employer-provided healthcare and capture that stream of money and use it to finance a single-payer healthcare system, right? That wouldn't pay for fully, fully, fully everything that's in here. But if you could get that big chunk of money, that would cover 70 to 80% of the cost of what you're talking about. And then the amount of new taxes on top of that would be relatively modest, right? If you look at the OECD comparison, uh, the American public sector spends as a share of GDP about average for the OECD. And American patients spend out of pocket about an average amount for the OECD. And then there's this dark matter, right, of what employers spend, which is like a bajillion times higher than everyone else because nobody else has an employer-sponsored system. So designing a method that like gets at those funds appropriately is hard. It's particularly hard for state governments, which is why they keep failing, because there's federal ERISA rules and stuff that they need to deal with, and they have to deal with employer competitiveness from from state to state. But it seems to me that it should be doable through some kind of mechanism, right? And I think there's something attractive about the politics of starting with a wish list and bargaining down from there relative to this sort of Barack Obama approach of starting with a program that you then go on television and you say, oh, this is actually a Republican plan. And then all the Republicans are like, no, Barack, it, it isn't. And I, I that was a cute sort of trick, I guess, but it didn't really achieve what it was supposed to achieve. Whereas, like, if if what we were hearing was that, like, Bernie Sanders, and in particular, Bernie Sanders' 14 co-sponsors, are ideological fanatics who will refuse to vote for any healthcare legislation that falls short of this. You know, I would be saying, come on, guys, like, that's ridiculous. But we know that Bernie Sanders will vote for much more moderate healthcare bills than this if that's what comes to the floor. And certainly, Cory Booker is not a ideological fanatic who won't vote for a bill short of this. And I think that to sketch this out as a sort of regulative ideal, right? And say that what you want is we have a public program, Medicare, and what they want is for that program to cover more people and to cover a wider array of services. Like, that's a reasonable proposition. But so here's where I think the the politics, because I think now we're moving into this sort of question of like practicality, is really interesting. So I have a couple, um, I'm not sure disagreements, but but things that I am am unsure about in, in the way you laid out the theory of this politically. So one is that take this versus sort of the Affordable Care Act thing. 
I think that looking back, we look at the Affordable Care Act and correctly say, well, coming out with a bunch of pay fours and trying to like negotiate everything down and coming out with a compromise proposal, that had a lot of problems with it. And like that proposal hasn't been that popular. And and so maybe that was the wrong way to go. On the other hand, it's the only one of these that has passed. <laughs> and I think there's also some reason for that. And so this is a wish list proposal, but it's not a wish list proposal without consequences, right? I mean, I think something Sarah is saying and that, that I do agree with and, and sort of implicit what I'm saying too, is that what will happen as this proposal kind of grinds forward, um, because Sanders is now important enough, the Democrats who are on this proposal are, are important enough, somebody is going to send this to CBO and it may well be a Republican. <laughs> um, if I don't know if Sanders people have already sent it. Maybe they have. I am not sure. So oftentimes you would not get a proposal like this scored. Right. But it's very possible, in my view, that you're going to get this scored. And one reason you're going to get it scored is that um, Republicans will look at this and they'll say, well, when this wish list gets costed out, we are going to be able to say that every one of these Democrats running for president in 2020 has endorsed what is functionally, you know, let's say, I mean, if we're just using the Vermont numbers, and that was a much less generous proposal, was it an 11.5% payroll tax increase or 9.5%? Well, no, 11.5%. Payroll, 9% income. So, I mean, that all of a sudden, you go from this is a wish list to you've just endorsed this very um, unpopular thing. And similarly, I actually give Sanders to some degree credit. It really does help your cost control capabilities if you wipe out private insurance in the country, if you wipe out Medicare. But one reason people are reticent about proposing that kind of thing is that that really scares people. Even if you think it's better on the other end, Jeff asked Sanders about this. He said, you know, why wipe out everything else? Like, isn't that going to scare people? And he really refused to answer that question. He refused to see it as a, even a question people would legitimately have. And I think to Sanders, it isn't a question people would legitimately have. Like, he really knows and believes single payers better. He, like, understands the details of his plan. But you you put this out, and all of a sudden, all these Democrats have voted for, like, the thing you have to be totally taken away from you. And you're now in this whole other system with this totally opaque financing mechanism and blah, 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 blah. And so now you're defending something that has a lot of upsides, right? That is the advantage of the of the wish list approach, but also has a lot of downsides and is in some ways a much more traditional debate in American life about whether or not you trust the government. And I, I really think that that is something that we don't 100% know how it plays out. We've not seen a plan like this of this scale become central enough in American politics, become part of a, a sort of leading American politicians platform in this way, become endorsed by every uh, leading member of the opposition party who might be running for president. We have not seen a plan like that. Um, and so we've not seen that try to be defended. Now, maybe it works, right? I just, I just actually don't know. What I wouldn't say is to assume that Everything in this plan, because Sanders isn't making some of the trade-offs, is going to be more popular. Part of the reason you make the trade-offs is you're taking, like, it sucks when you say, hey, it doesn't cover this, or hey, it has this cost-sharing. But then you don't have to defend a tax increase that is totally out of line with what anybody's ever heard before. Or you don't have to defend um, an increase in the budget that is out of line with what everybody's ever heard before. Or you don't have to stand up there on a stage and say, you know, yes, I've endorsed a plan that would mean you don't have your employer-sponsored insurance five years from now. I recognize that these things can be defended. I actually do think that um, 
I think a lot of people would be better off with some form of like expanded Medicare versus the insurance they have now. But I don't think, and I know you and I have a bit of a disagreement on this, but I don't think um, Democrats have traditionally been wrong when they thought, you know, people don't trust the government that much. They don't always trust us that much. And they're pretty risk averse when it comes to their health care. Um, particularly a lot of these folks who live in areas the Democrats are not winning right now. And so I am not sure that uh, what Sanders has done here is start with the most popular version of this plan. I think that he started with the most leftward version of well, this plan. I think my hope is like where this leads is actually getting a lot more analysis and thinking from like the left-leaning think tank world about what makes sense here. I think there has been some hesitance, as Matt has written about and we talked about in a recent episode of The Weeds, for kind of the leading health think tanks on the left, places like Urban Institute, Center for American Progress, to really engage on this debate. It felt a little bit too fringe. It felt like, well, we need to like double down and defend the Affordable Care Act and put out all these white papers about how terrible it would be if the cost-sharing reduction subsidies get pulled. I think this plan, and especially the fact that now has 15 co-sponsors, including pretty much anyone who is a frontrunner for the presidential nomination in 2020, it makes it very hard for think tanks to sit on the sidelines. And we even saw this morning some kind of cryptic tweets from Topher Spiro at um, the Center for American Progress, who I think it was Dave Weigel was tweeting about how think tanks haven't gotten involved. And I think he tweeted back something like, just wait or, you know, Yeah, well, now that Gillibrand so, and Booker and right. Harris are for it. Now it's really hard. Suddenly the mainstream damn think tanks yeah. have to and, think single payers. Right. <laughs> my my hope and, like, what I am interested to see is, like, where, how this gets nailed down. Like, if you end up, and I think they're really, like, we were talking earlier about how different, I think at the end of the day, you'll have to have some kind of form of constraining the cost of the system. And either that's a smaller benefit package or it's more cost sharing. And ideologically, I think they say a lot of different things about how you want to structure a healthcare system, whether you want everyone to have no cost barriers or you and you're okay with shortening your benefit package, or you'd rather have a wider benefit package that requires people to chip in a little bit each time that they use it. I think this plan does neither, and that trade-off is going to have to be made given everything we know about international health systems and I look forward to hopefully a deluge of like white papers on these sort of trade-offs that will inform a lot of this debate that feels like it's really kicking off. All right, so if you've been looking to sort of elevate your, your grooming and self-care uh, routine into like a real, a true grooming ritual, uh, this is a great opportunity for you because The Art of Shaving is announcing a brand new bourbon-inspired collection in collaboration with the highly anticipated new film, Kingsman the Golden Circle, that's in theaters September 22nd. Uh, inspired by the Kingsman movies, the new Art of Shaving collection was thoughtfully created to celebrate the best of the modern gentleman. It combines a rich, woodsy base with just a hint of vanilla, a bourbon amber scent that evokes both heritage and tradition. There's a blend of botanical ingredients and essential oils in the pre-shave formula. It's perfectly suited for men with tough beards. Formerly with skin conditioners and essential oils, the shaving cream helps hydrate and soften your beard hair for a close and comfortable shave. And last, blended with essential oils and moisturizers, the light and quick-absorbing aftershave balm hydrates and refreshes skin after shaving, leaving it feeling smooth. The Kingsman Collection items are available at all The Art of Shaving's retail locations and online at theartofshaving.com. It's a really great, classy company to sort of upgrade your shave, upgrade your morning routine. Uh, this Kingsman collaboration is very exciting. So, 
see the new movie Kingsman the Golden Circles in theaters September 22nd. And our listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using promo code WEEDS. Uh, so to get this offer, you just go online to theartofshaving.com, use our special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer. And be sure to catch Kingsman the Golden Circle in theaters September 22nd. Speaking yes. of, actually, that's not speaking of delusive <laughs> white papers. Here's a debate that never came up. That's <laughs> yeah, what I'm going to do. Speaking of vague ideas that could use some more analysis. So I uh, read Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened, the other day, because I was, I was interviewing Hillary Clinton, an interview you can find on Vox.com. And that book has gotten a lot of coverage for stuff she says about Bernie Sanders, most of which I, I didn't actually find that interesting. She does go out of her way to criticize him. But it's nothing she has not said before, so like nothing in there is particularly revelatory. But there is something that really did surprise me in the book, which is on page 239, if I remember correctly, she sort of – she has this interesting chapter where she is working through what's clearly some uncertainty on her end as to whether or not she approached policy ideas in the campaign too technocratically, whether or not she was too reticent about coming out with big galvaning, galvanizing ideas like single payer or, you know, college for all or, um, the you know, the wall with Mexico. And in this section, she says that she read a book called With Liberty and Dividends for All by a guy named Peter Barnes. And she got very interested in this idea that, that was put forward in this book of could you create a basic income, a universal basic income based around the revenues that come from shared public resources like fossil fuel extraction, public lands, et cetera, and possibly the tax revenues that come from taxing sort of public harms like carbon emissions and high-speed financial trading, things like that. And I don't think Hillary Clinton is great at branding. So she got very literal about this and kept thinking about it and calling it Alaska for America because Alaska has a somewhat unusual setup where the money that comes from oil and gas extraction in Alaska gets put into this reserve fund and then every Alaskan gets a check from it every year. And this is a very successful program. It's very popular in Alaska. It's one of the few things we have in, in the world that really looks like the beginning of a universal basic income. Um, Dylan Matthews uh, can tell you sort of like everything about this program, but it's quite interesting. So Hillary Clinton, like a wonk, <laughs> looked at this, like looked at this idea and was like, this is like Alaska for America. And she thought, and she really tried, she says in the book and, and says in our interview, to figure out how to make, put this in her campaign. But she couldn't make the numbers work. Um, no matter what she did, she says either the taxes were too high in order to get a benefit of any real size, or she was cannibalizing all these other programs that she felt were more important in order to, to make the numbers work. And so she didn't put it in. And she says in the book, you know, I wonder now if that was the wrong decision. Maybe I should have made this an aspirational goal and let the details be worked out later, which I think may well be right. But what's interesting to me about this is, one, Hillary Clinton almost ran on what would have been if she had gone with a reasonably big version of it an incredibly ambitious, even transformative public policy proposal, a way of doing a, a universal basic income that I think makes some sense, that has a sort of theory behind it. There's a whole, not just policy theory here, but more almost like 
cultural, spiritual theory about reimagining what the government and the sort of our shared public resources relationship to the country is, not seeing, as she put it, things like fossil fuel extraction as a private sector question, but also as a public sector thing. She does make the point that she worried, and I think this is a fair point, she worried this would have um, unintended consequences, like incentivizing more fossil fuel extraction so you get more revenues for your public uh <laughs> For your public income, for your basic income, but but putting that aside, um, so she she didn't release it, but it's really interesting. It's interesting that this almost happened in the 2016 campaign. It's interesting as a question of how should you think about policy. It is a, like just the literal opposite of this whole conversation we've had about Bernie Sanders, which is go for the maximalist version and then assume you can bargain to things down later. It's an interesting way of thinking about uh, public lands and public goods and and also public ills. And I don't know, I was just a little taken aback by it. It's the sort of thing that has not gotten a lot of coverage in the book because it's not, I don't know, her attacking someone. But if you want to think about ways in which a 2016 election could have been different, this to me is actually a much more interesting one than most of what people have come up with so far. I have one factual question before yeah. we get into this that hopefully one of you has the answer to. So I understand the Alaska program because I spent a while reading about it the past few days that they set up this plan as they were having kind of this oil rush and decided this is how we're going to use the revenue, we're going to distribute part of it to people. What happens to the kind of oil and gas revenue coming out of public lands elsewhere right now? That's just all going to private companies at this point? Or like what is being— Well, so the federal government charges money and it goes into the sort of revenue pile. So it's just like general revenue at this point. Yeah, It's not being dedicated to anything. Right. And, you know, the, the fees could be higher. Sure. It could be a lot higher. Okay. Uh, probably should be. I mean, it seems like the big sort of win here, Rep Larson has a bill lingering around that would put a $15 a ton carbon tax, uh, and I think it raises by 4% per year or something like that, and it's supposed to generate a dividend of, uh, I think it's $250 per person initially, and it would grow and then I think probably eventually plateau and decline. Um, Obviously, a $250 a year annual check is not the same as a basic income. Uh, You're you're not going to live on that. Uh, Alaska permanent fund payments are also not really enough to subsist on, um, which is one reason you don't see people like move to Alaska to freeze to death in the cold with an $8,000 a year check. Uh, You still, you know, need to like get a job. It's, It's nice to have the money. My my big question about this is, like, did she really run the numbers and she couldn't make them work? Because, like, you know, $15 a ton carbon tax, $250, like, that's something. Maybe it should be $20 a ton. Maybe you should raise the fees on this mineral stuff. Maybe you should auction public spectrum that she mentioned. Uh, maybe you should raise... I, I think I've seen that the socially optimal uh, gas tax uh, should be separate from carbon effect, should be a dollar a gallon higher. You could throw that in. I mean, I, I can see good reasons to not propose this, like, crushing blow to America's uh, uh, natural resource extraction industry that, like, you might think that would be politically unpopular. You might think that Democrats are already excessively branded as hostile to manly man activities like mining and logging and stuff like that. So, like, I I, I fully believe that, like, you could look at this and decide, okay, this is not a great idea. That's not the best use of money. It's not a good expenditure of political capital. But to me, the, like, really, like, truly Hillary thing about this is that 
it seems like she's trying to talk herself into the idea that something was impossible when it's really just that they decided they didn't want to run on it. So but- I, I asked her about this, um, and I, I, th- I think I got two answers that point in different directions. One is that I think Clinton, in again, the opposite way of Sanders, Sanders is very focused, uh, almost to the exclusion of all else, on the benefits of any plan he proposes. And I almost like kind of often doesn't seem to me to hear the the, the downsides, like if you confront him with like, this is the way it will be attacked or this is what people fear about it, he often even won't answer. He just waves it away. Clinton is almost literally the opposite, where I think sometimes all she can see is the downsides and the way she will be attacked for something. And the thing that they said uh, in the book and, and what I think goes to that is that they say the taxes kept being too high. So I think when she ran the numbers, what she's saying is not that you couldn't make the math work of a big benefit, but to do that, she w- she kept imagining these ads. And again, I'm reading a little bit between the lines here of like Hillary Clinton proposes $15 trillion right. tax increase. So that's one thing. The other, and I don't know how big of a deal this was, but this was something when I asked her about it in the interview, I got a slightly different explanation than was in the book where she said that um, she kept trying to explain to people what was happening in Alaska, but nobody understood what was happening in Alaska. So she just like couldn't make the messaging work either. But that struck me as a pure problem of basing this in her own head about what was happening in Alaska, which really seems like neither here nor there to me. So I don't know. I don't know how much it was the taxes and how much was they got very caught up in this Alaska for America framing, started trying that out on people. People like, what? I don't I don't care what's happening in Alaska. And they're like, well, nobody will actually like this and, and dropped it. But I think I don't want to skip over what's happening in Alaska because I think that was actually and I don't want to sell it short, too, because I think the effects on poverty have actually been quite. Huge. significant with a relatively small payment that I think is um, has typically been about $1,000 to $2,000 a year, kind of depending on what sort of oil revenue the state is getting. There was this EPI study from 2002 where it's, they had this um, sentence that I wrote down from it that, that really stuck out to me, where they found in the past 10 years, the income of the poorest fifth of Alaskans increased 28% compared to a 7% increase from for the richest, which is just the opposite of the rest of the country that you're seeing incomes go up much more significantly among low-income Alaskans that that you don't see elsewhere. And that, um, you know, a separate study from 2016 found that the fund reduced poverty rates 2.3 percentage points over the past five years, which comes out to lifting about 15 to 25,000 Alaskans out of poverty annually. So it really is like a, it feels like a lot of bang for buck in this program Mm -hmm. that for a high-income Alaskan, these payments probably are not doing much. They feel very marginal. They apparently come out right before Christmas, and like maybe you use them, you know, to finance your Christmas shopping. But for low-income families, it actually does seem to be a, a pretty significant program. I don't think people are moving to Alaska for it, and partially because moving to Alaska is kind of challenging, and there's a one-year residency requirement. But I, I do think it actually is pretty, pretty remarkable what it has done with this amount of money. You know, in terms of this trade-off between, like, do you go for something without the details or, you know, do you kind of hold back on those? I think what I've learned, at least watching the Republican healthcare debate, that it seems like there's a lot of power in getting elected on running on vague promises. It is very hard to to govern on those vague promises. Looking at the Affordable Care Act debate, there are a lot of promises around a healthcare plan that covers everybody at lower costs, um, you know, that was better made by President Trump that have just turned into a disaster in trying to pass any 
sort of healthcare policy because it turns out you couldn't deliver on them. So I, a lot of it kind of depends on what what goal you're oriented to. I think, you know, Ezra, you were talking about how Sanders likes to talk about the big upside and Clinton focus on the big downside. I think Clinton's, you know, mode of, she thought a lot about, and I think she said this in your interview, like, what would I do as president? How would I manage my presidency? How would I get the promises I made actually passed? And I think you saw more of a focus from Sanders and Trump on, what can I propose that's great? And then once I get into office, we will work out how to do that really great plan. And I think you see very different styles of gov- styles of campaigning motivated by what it feels like your end goal actually is. I also, though, to give, I don't quite know, I feel like Hillary sometimes didn't give herself enough credit for what she proposed in the campaign and then isn't realistic enough about what she talked about in the campaign, but she, she didn't run on Alaska for America because that makes no sense. But she <laughs> she did, like, she in October came out with this, they called it an enhancement of the uh, child tax credit, but it was basically what in other countries is, is called a, a universal child allowance. Mm-hmm. It would have drastically cut deep poverty. It did not have a detailed financing mechanism, you know? So, like, she, she's not blind to the like, just, like, factually not averse to doing the this is affordable, but we're going to talk about how exactly to finance it later kind of thing. Um, what she did not do, right, if you're, like, like, what did and didn't happen in the campaign is she did not brand herself as a candidate who is obsessed with the problem of deep poverty faced by American children and their mothers who was obsessed with solving it. And it's odd because at times, you know, when she does like calm, long interviews and stuff like that, that is what she says she's obsessed with. She has the biography, you know, if you want like a a through line in her work, like it all, it all connects there. But like the campaign that she ran in terms of like, what did the ad dollars say? What were her attention grabbing speeches was about how Donald Trump was a dangerous maniac who was going to destroy the world. And like, that was the big choice that was made, you know, wasn't, it wasn't really, like, to run on visionary policies or to run on, like, boring, wonky policies. It was to run on Donald Trump's temperamental and characterological unfitness for president, rather than to run on if all of these Hillary Clinton policy proposals were enacted, your life would be way, way better. Like, she had a ton of policy proposals. They were not you know, as left-wing as Bernie Sanders' proposals, I think primarily because she is not as left-wing as Bernie Sanders is, a slightly odd... I I, I think it's a little weird that she doesn't seem to quite want to say that ever, that, like, in America, there are 330 million people. They disagree about some matters of ideology. There are two political parties. The tents are reasonably large. People can just disagree about some things. Not everything is about what's realistic. But, like, she had this list of proposals, including a basic income-ish proposal. It just, it wasn't a major focus because I think, obviously she lost, but, like, I I was there at the time. I felt that the reasons for running primarily based on Donald Trump's unfitness for office, like, made sense. They seemed compelling. I, I understand why they made that choice. And, like, that was the issue here. If you had added another page to the hillaryclinton.com slash issues tab and it had been like we're gonna 
finance a basic income based on uh, a dividend of our natural resources, like that would not have made any difference. You, there were a ton of things under that tab. Yeah, and it, that gets to, I think, a broader issue of framing that campaign where you have to decide what it is you're talking about all the time. And that I think they had um, on a policy level a lot of trouble doing. They had too many things to talk about. So it wasn't like Sanders had single payer and free college. Trump had the wall and trade and she had 47 policies. But I actually want to pull out because I think if you pull our whole conversation together, you see something interesting here. And this is sort of the point I think I was trying to make not incredibly well early in our Sanders conversation. But if you imagine that the Democratic Party, because that's what we're talking about here today, has a limited amount of political capital, even if it retakes the government. Um, if you imagine that probably all these things are going to be too hard to do, but if you if you are optimistic about it, you can only raise taxes so high all in one group and like bring so many costs that are maybe now spread throughout the private sector onto the public budget. You can only you can only do so many big things at once. I think there's an interesting question as to whether or not, given where we are in healthcare now. Um, we just had the census numbers come out. We're at the lowest number of uninsured uh, since we've been keeping track. Given where we are in healthcare now, is the thing the Democratic Party wants to do as its next really big proposal to try to take the healthcare system and move it further towards universality, further towards um, healthcare that is free at the point of service? Or is the next big project, um, to the point that Sarah was making about the Alaska Permanent Fund, some kind of massive transfer payment that is the beginning of a basic income that really cuts into deep poverty in a way that we've had a lot of trouble doing, that sort of fundamentally changes the relationship between the citizens and the state and what they get and what you get as part of being American? Um, I think this is actually a, a bigger question than people give it credit for and a pretty unsettled one. For a very long time, the Democratic Party's animating central biggest policy question was health care. Um, and then I actually thought in this campaign, uh, in the 2016 campaign, you saw some possible question that it was changing. Maybe it was really going to be college now, right? Maybe I, I actually – it often seemed to me that Bernie Sanders' college stuff, um, free college – uh, like on a tuition level, was getting more heat than the single-payer stuff and certainly than the healthcare stuff coming out of the Clinton campaign. Then there's this ferment around a universal basic income, which I know Cory Booker is considering. I think other 2020 candidates are going to consider it. Clearly, Hillary Clinton was considering it too. And you you certainly can have all of these policy ideas in your pocket, right? There, there's no limit on how many things a political party can want to do. But there is a question of, what its animating idea is that it will do if it gets power, right? I mean, there's also cap and trade and climate change things, which could be part of a universal basic income, but aren't necessarily there. And so if you're thinking about big blue sky policy ideas, policy ideas that may or may not happen, but are of the size that they can animate a political movement, is the thing that Democrats should be doing making sort of healthcare free at any level for whoever wants it? I think that's a plausible vision is a thing they should be doing, making it such that every American, by virtue of being an American, gets like a pretty significant check that will keep them out of poverty or help them stay out of poverty, um, that will change their relationship to the state, that will mean that there is a lot less deep poverty in this country. Is it that they need to be worried about sort of the future um, of the climate and the future of this planet and sort of no matter what the cost, like it should be a carbon tax or cap and trade or cap and dividend or something like that, some package of those policies? I, I think this is actually a pretty 
important question that's going to begin playing out. I think Sanders has like really pulled the party towards single payer with this move. I think he's decided that is going to be the core of his idea of politics. But I do wonder if um, there are going to be other entrants into this. What was interesting to me about this Clinton policy, which never came out, and and I sort of agree, Matt, you could very much imagine it coming out in a way that also didn't really make a splash. But it's also a vision, or lurking within it is a vision of how you could have a progressive campaign based around a very big transformative proposal that is not what we have seen from Democrats um, in a very long time. I guess the only real analog is McGovern had, what were those called, America bonds or something? Does anybody remember this? Oh yeah, it was like it was like a baby bonds plan. It was some kind of, kind of massive bond plan, yeah. but 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 it happened back then. And you know, political parties can't do everything, and so I, I do think there's a question of what is the Democratic Party's next great crusade going to be? Should it be building on its healthcare um, achievements with Obamacare, or should it be saying you know trying to like fortify Obamacare and move it forward a little bit, but saying you know the next great project is this other thing over here? I've actually always been confused if by the metaphysical status of the single-payer plan in Bernie's political thinking in exactly this way, right? Because I was, like, a super enthusiastic single-payer supporter in, like, 2003 when nobody thought that, like, the American political system was going to address comprehensive healthcare reform in a big way. It was just, like, a totally off-the-wall thing. Like, do you think America should completely copy the Swedish healthcare system? I'd be like, sure. Right? And, like, and I think a lot of Democrats, right, like, whether or not this is what politicians would campaign on, if you just, like, ask some Hill staffer, like, would it be better if, like, the government just covered everybody's healthcare? They'd be like, yeah, sure. Right. And then a separate question would be like, what are you going to do on Tuesday? Right. Which was like, deal with the doc fix or, or, or whatever else. And that the act of saying over the course of 2006 and 2007, a push for universal health care should go to the top of the policy agenda for the Democratic Party had the impact of like moderating people's stated views on healthcare, like Nancy Pelosi stops being a single payer advocate as Nancy Pelosi starts pushing healthcare legislation. Um, part of Bernie's thing, I think, has always been to talk about public policy in the way that a liberal person who isn't a U.S. senator would talk about public policy. Like, should college be free? Yes. Like, should healthcare be free to everyone? Sure. Foreign <laughs> countries do it all the time. You know what I mean? Like, just like opinions that people who vote for Democrats hold, he will just say, which I think proved to be a pretty good primary <laughs> campaign because you're trying to get people who vote for Democrats to go vote for you. And there's like a separate, like also if you ask Bernie Sanders, like what's the biggest issue threatening Americans today? He says climate change, right? So like what would a Sanders administration like do is a interesting. And I think, you know, because he was behind the whole way and was never like close to becoming president of the United States. This is one of these things that has never been like truly put to the test. He's clearly decided post-election that Medicare for all is, like, his thing, right? That, like, to be a, like, Bernie Dem, this is the dotted line you need to sign on to. He has lots of other bills, right? Like, but he's not out there uh, barnstorming the country about his prizes for prescription drugs bill or a million other, like, like, ideas he's put out there. And 
you could see this going in a lot of different ways. And one thing that is not obvious to me based on these co-sponsorships is like, does this mean that if Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker or Kristen Gillibrand or Kamala Harris is elected president, that in 2021 there will be a major legislative push for single-payer health care? Or does this mean that because everyone who wants to run for president is like now agreed, quote-unquote, on this, that it stops being an intra-party wedge issue and sort of falls off the legislative agenda, which, you know, I could imagine sort of happening. And everyone's like, well, we really need to address immigration and climate change, right, which you, took a back seat under You have Obama. plenty of things on any party platform that don't go addressed every year. There's kind of things you say that, like, make you a Democrat or make you a Republican. One of the things that surprised me about this year is the resurgence of liberal interest in health policy. I think there was this period post-ACA where it was a really bruising fight a lot of people lost their seats in the House that a lot of Democrats felt like, okay, we did something very, very big, and we are very proud of that, and we don't really want to revisit this issue. That this had been, it has been an animating issue for the Democratic Party for quite some time, but we've really taken the biggest step on it since, we, since the 1960s when Medicare and Medicare were created, and it felt like it moved a little bit backseat. I think the fact that Republicans have tried to go it alone and said, we are going to implement whatever health care system we want and got quite close to doing so. You know, we're one vote shy in the Senate of moving forward with some kind of plan to repeal the Affordable Care Act. It, in a way that surprised me, pushed the Democrats to focus on health care again and to think about why should we do this kind of compromise plan? What is the value in, in something like the Affordable Care Act, which we like, but also falls a lot short of the things that that we aim for. And it's been this year where I feel like I've seen, especially on the state level, a lot of kind of innovating and thinking through how do we expand public insurance, like and a lot more policy thinking going to those issues. I think one of the things you need in order to do some kind of serious policy push is actually a lot of people in the wonk world thinking through, okay, this is how we would actually turn this into law. There's a lot more of that happening on things that are not the Affordable Care Act, on things that are more aggressive pushes towards public insurance than than we had just about a year ago when it felt like, in a weird way, it feels like if we had had a Clinton presidency where there's no chance of the Affordable Care Act, I don't think we'd this Sanders plan would be getting nearly as much attention or, or as much sign-on mm-hmm. as it's getting today. Yeah, we'd be talking about family leave or something, right? <laughs> yeah, but— if you are somebody who likes thinking about policy, I actually want to close here, but we have a job listing that, that I want to promote here on The Weeds, which is if you're an experienced editor who enjoys conversations like this one, who would like to be assigning stories on things like the Alaska Permanent Fund and Bernie Sanders' single-payer plan, we are looking for a policy editor at Vox who will run uh, our, our policy team, who will be assigning stories, editing stories, conceiving of stories, helping to, to manage writers on those topics. If that is an interesting job to you and, and you have sort of experience in that area, uh, come check it out. You can find the job listing at voxmedia.com. Uh, there's a careers tab there. I think it's actually just voxmedia.com slash careers. But if I'm wrong about that, voxmedia.com and find the careers tab. And, you know, you need a couple years experience in the editing realm. But uh, but if you are a policy obsessive and you would like to run a team of people who are also policy obsessives and like you listen to this and you think of 20 great stories that you could have going right now, you should apply. We would love to work with you. So check that out again at VoxMedia.com under the careers page. Hooray. 
Hooray. Hooray. Um, yeah, and when you're done checking that out, uh, check out other exciting Vox Media podcasts. Uh, thank you for listening. We are going to be back on Friday. Thanks to our producer, Jillian Weinberger, and our engineer, Peter Leonard. And I'll see you in a couple days. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Weeds. Uh, but I also want to take this moment to insert a, a really proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Uh, Vox Media is the fastest-growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high-fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at Vox.com, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics that you, our listeners, care about most. Uh, you know, for us, that's that's really public policy, but for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's SB Nation, which tells the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, and what to disrupt next, or Curbed, all about real estate, home design, all that great stuff. Uh, what unites all these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality, because we believe in the power of going deeper, and we believe in the best of our audiences. So if you aren't going deep, where are you going? Check out Vox Media.